John 3 and verse 16. The passage says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promise that if two or three gather, you're in our presence. And as we've prayed so many times in the past, we pray that your presence would be with us this morning. Help me, help the worshipers. May you fetch glory for yourself, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Beloved, if this would be the last time that I would ever preach to you, this is the passage and this is the message that I would preach. John Flavel speaks about our voyage as Christians. He likens it to being on the deck, the slippery deck of a ship on a stormy sea. And Flavel says, we never know when the next wave will sweep us overboard. Sweep us overboard and we would free fall. Free fall into eternity. And really there's only one thing needful regarding that idea of our breathing our last and free falling into eternity And that is that we would need to have a parachute that would give us a safe landing. And I want to talk to you about the only hope that a hell-deserving sinner has to safely land in eternity. And that is this passage, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Now you may think, some of you, oh, this is for a visitor who came and needs to hear the gospel for the first time. So you might tune me out. But you're so wrong. You're so wrong. This is the gospel that we all need. In fact, if you know about silk parachutes, the law says that they must be repacked, opened up and repacked every 60 days to make sure that the parachute will provide a safe landing. So all of us, Whether we've been a Christian for five minutes or five decades, we all this hour need to examine our own hearts, our own faith to make sure that if this is the last time and we would free fall into eternity, that it would be well with our souls. So I want to bring you a message on John 3.16 with four main headings. And the first main heading is God says, God so loved the world. Who is God? Well, God is the creator, the sustainer, and the judge of all the earth, of every man, woman, and child. And every man, woman, and child will give an account to him on the last day. Oh, who is this God that we'll stand before? Well, God is a holy God who characterizes himself as being 
dominated by the attribute of blazing moral purity. Isaiah 6 describes him as holy, holy, holy. God cannot tolerate evil. Just like a dry leaf in October might flutter before a backyard bonfire, that leaf is doomed to be consumed. And so all of us who are sinners are doomed if we stand before God on Judgment Day. Left to ourselves, we'll be consumed by the holy wrath of God. That's why Isaiah says, Woe to me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. Unclean. We all need to be like... Oh, like Kelly Adkins standing in front of us marrying Brad just a few months ago in bright white color. But we are all standing before the holiness demanding God full of filthiness, filthy rags, all our righteousnesses, is filthy deeds. Habakkuk 1.13 says of God, Your eyes are too pure to approve of evil. And you cannot look upon wickedness with favor. Ever have a single grain of sand in your eye and you just can't tolerate it? If there's a single grain of sin in our lives, we will not be tolerated by God's holiness, for He is just. His standard is one of perfect moral purity. His law, His law says that there will be punishment, He will not leave the guilty unpunished. God never winks at sin. It says in Exodus 34, 7, He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. It is a wicked thing for a judge who disregards crimes. Imagine if when John Wilkes Booth had shot and assassinated Abraham Lincoln, and Booth was brought before the court and the judge, and the judge says, well, we're going to let you go on this. Is that wonderful? No, that's ugly, because that's not justice. God is not ugly. God is a God of justice. It says in Psalm 11, 6, Upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire and brimstone and burning will be the portion of their cup. God, he's holy, he's just, and he's exacting. The commitment of a single sin results in the just punishment of God's wrath. Like it says in James 2.10, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point, he has become guilty of all. Go back to John Wilkes Booth, the assassin. What if all the rest of his life was one of perfect obedience? He was the ideal citizen. And he only committed one crime just one time. He pulled a trigger on Lincoln's head. Should we let him go? No, one crime in God's eyes means we've broken all the law of God. In fact, even for Adam, look, it was only one sin that cursed him and all of his children offspring. Does this sound unreasonable? That God is holy and just and so exacting? Come on, let him go. Let us go. We've only committed a little bit of sin. Otherwise, we're basically pretty good people. You know why we think like that? Because like it says in Psalm 50 and verse 21, You thought I, God, was just like you. You may be willing to wink at sin, but I am not. You see, God requires, God requires of us perfect holiness without a single grain of sin. It's like, Jack, if you're preparing a resume, 
if you see a typo on their resume, you throw it in the trash. If it's only one type, only one sin, dust, in your life or my life, we're thrown in the trash of the lake of fire because we're sinners against God, who is a just God. That's our first point, God. The second point, then, is man. Man, this is a dangerous situation we're in if we're sinners to face such a God. Consider man, because the passage says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, that's man, the whoever part, any man, that whoever believes in him. Let's look at man. Man was created by God, that's you and I. We're daily sustained by God, and we will in the last day be judged by God. We, man, woman, we have, all of us, a sin problem. In two ways, really. There's the original sin problem. Adam's sin was legally charged to the record of each and every one of his children. There's a little boy, Alder Jones. He's only a few days old now. He popped out of the womb, seemingly cute and innocent, right? No, no, not according to the scriptures. He came out with original sin. It says in Romans 5, 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. See, Adam, our father, stood as a legal representative for all of those who would be his offspring. He was our legal representative, sort of like when FDR, the president, after Pearl Harbor had been bombed by Japan, FDR represented all Americans. And he wrote a declaration of war against Japan, meaning all of us were at war against Japan. Adam was our representative in the Garden of Eden. He signed a declaration of war against God, meaning all of us, all of his children, you and I and her and him, we are all at war with God because of the original sin imputed to our account through Adam. And so little Alder, the baby, and all of us, before we spoke or breathed or walked, were all guilty of Adam's sin, born under the wrath of God, hell-bound. For we are hostile against God, at war with him. It says in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived us. Now someone may say, well, that's unfair. That if one representing all the others, that's not fair. Well, then you've just disqualified any hope of ever getting saved. Because the only hope of ever getting saved is that one Jesus would represent all of us. And if there's no hope of one representing all and, and the many, then there's no hope for us at all. Because Christ is our only hope. So all of us here sitting, we have original sin. We also have personal sin. Every soul has a bad record, due not only to the imputation of Adam's sin, but all of us because of our imitation of Adam's sin. All of us have followed in the footsteps of our forefather, Adam. Like it says in Romans 3.23, for all of us have sinned, personally ourselves, not just Adam's sin. 
you think of what you've done. I know what I've done. I'm ashamed to tell you. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What is sin? Sin is disobeying the law of God. The law of God says, have no other gods before me. I'm a self-idolater. Don't take my name in vain. I've spoken it so frequently. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. I've broken the Lord's day. Honor father and mother. I lied when I told my mom that I brushed my teeth. And I didn't. Do not murder. I've hated in my heart. Do not commit adultery. I've lusted in my heart. Do not steal. I've taken things from a little store when I was a little boy. Do not bear false witness. I've lied. Do not covet. I've wanted stuff other people have had. I am a sinner. I have created personal sin. I have a bad record before God. Like it says in Isaiah 53, 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And as it says in Psalm 40, my iniquity has overtaken me that I cannot see. My sins are more numerous than the hairs of my head. And I'm in big trouble. We're all in big trouble before God, we men and women. And it's not just one sin, it's continual sin. Every soul of man and woman, every soul has a bad heart producing more and more sin. We're like evil deed factories. That's what our hearts are. We have motivations that are ungodly. And cleanup is impossible. We're sinners. It says in Jeremiah 17.5, The heart is more deceitful beyond all else and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Isaiah 64.6 says, For all of us have become like one who was unclean, and our righteous deeds was a filthy garment. And Jesus says in Matthew 15, For out of the heart comes murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. You see, if this Bible would represent all of my sins or your sins, if every little letter in my Bible, if one letter in my Bible represented 10,000 sins in my life, then I have this whole catalog of tens of thousands and billions and trillions and quadrillions of sins against a God who demands that I stand before him perfect in holiness without a grain of sin. But instead I have this mountain of sin that is on me that I must carry on my back to judgment day before his holy, holy, holy eyes. And I am a man who is in big trouble. You are in big trouble before God. We are doomed to hell. That is our sin problem. Not just a pinch of sin but a whole mountain rage of sin before a holy, holy God who can't tolerate a single grain of sin. We are all in trouble. Everybody sitting here in a burgundy chair, we are all left to ourselves in big trouble. Leads me thirdly to Jesus Christ. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Let's look at that. He gave his only begotten son. See, man is hopeless and helpless to save himself. But God sent a Savior, his Son, who is fully God and fully man. Shoulders broad enough to bear the sin of man because he's God. 
Think of his sinless perfection, this Jesus Christ. Christ is the second Adam, perfectly fulfilled the law of God that both Adam and Eve couldn't keep, that none of us could ever keep. We've broken it all. It says in Hebrews 4, 15, He has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He's perfect. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He is the unblemished Lamb of God. Behold in Jesus, the Lamb of God, unblemished Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus Christ is wonderful as he has a sinless perfection, but he also has saving substitution. Christ came as a scapegoat to take on his back the full weight of a sinner's guilt. You read Leviticus 16 about this scapegoat. The high priest comes representing the the millions of Israelites behind him. The high priest comes as a representative, takes his hands, puts it on this scapegoat, right? This beast of burden. And the beast of burden takes those sins and they go, the beast goes out, out, out to the wilderness until the Scapegoat is gone as far as the east is from the west. So far, Psalm 103, can his sins be removed from us. It says in Isaiah 53, 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has chosen to go his own way. But God has caused the iniquity of us all, listen to this, the iniquities of us all to fall on him. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in our behalf we might become the righteousness of God. So look at the situation. We are required to be perfect before God for Judgment Day. But we have a problem. We have a mountain range of sins upon us. But Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. And God, it says, had laid upon Him the iniquities of us all. And the Lord Jesus took those iniquities on the cross. You see him there on the cross. What's happening to him? He's bearing the load of our sin. He is that scapegoat carrying all of the sins of his chosen people. And he shouts out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Do you know why God has forsaken him? Do you know why he is Enduring the outer darkness of hell and the rage and the justice of God against sin. You know why? Because he's taking our sin. He's taking our punishment for our sin on his back, on the cross, during those hours on the cross. In a moment in time, there was eternity in that moment. And Jesus took all of those sins and absorbed all of the cannon fire of the wrath of God until it was finished. And the cannons were silent. And there's no more wrath of God because Jesus had paid the full price of our sins. It is finished. And let me ask you, hell-deserving sinner, who deserves to spend an eternal sentence in hell under the wrath of God, enduring the cannon fire of God's justice, where does that leave you? Perfect. Because the iniquity of us all 
has fallen upon him. And we are left perfect, spotless, blameless before God. And we stand before God in judgment day. What a wretched man am I? Who will rescue me from this body of death? Jesus rescued me. So now, Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. It says in Isaiah 53.5, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourgings we are healed. Jesus Christ, beloved, alleluia, what a Savior. Leads us fourthly and finally to response. Response. Beloved, if we are to flee from the wrath to come, we must, by the power of the Holy Spirit, rightly respond to the gospel. We must rightly respond to the gospel. Two ways. First, by faith. You and I must abandon trust in our own good deeds. That's a fool's errand. Our good deeds... I'm, I'm good enough for Judgment Day. I've, I've, I've done well. No, we must abandon our own good deeds and believingly rest the full weight of our souls on Christ and his cross work. It says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That's a response. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not by works so that no man can boast. It says right here in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever is good enough shall not perish but have everlasting life. No, whoever believes in him transfers trust away from self to Christ Jesus. That man will alone be saved. Spurgeon tells a story of two men who are rowing in the Niagara River, you know, above the falls. But their boat capsizes, and they're both in the water. And they're hurling toward the precipice. And one of the men sees a oar that came off the boat and grabs that oar, thinking that the oar, because it's buoyant, will keep him safe. And he goes over the precipice. But another individual sees a rope that's been thrown to him by a bystander from the shore, and he grabs that rope, and he is pulled to safety. Trusting in your own good deeds is like grabbing the oar when we're in trouble. It's a sentence of doom to you to trust in your own good deeds. But instead, have belief in Christ, the Lamb of God, who is on the shore of heavenly safety. And he's throwing us the rope of the gospel. Grab that gospel. Abandon any hope in your own good deeds. That stuff is useless and dooming. Grab the gospel. Hold to the promises of the gospel with both fists, with all of your might. We sing it all the time. Nothing in my hands I bring. Only to thy cross I cling. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. On Judgment Day, that's all I got. That's all we got. Responding by faith in Christ. 
There's a second element to the response, and that is by repentance. By repentance. We must hate and forsake our sins because they are displeasing to God. We must resolve new obedience to God. Listen to this. It says in Titus 2.11, For the grace of God has appeared to all men, bringing salvation, instructing us to, listen, deny godliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. If we truly believe in Jesus and are born again, born again means the Spirit of God comes into our heart, and the Spirit of God does some holy renovation in that heart. (laughs) There's change in the life of somebody who was a sinner made a saint. Oh, he's not perfect. He's not what he wants to be. He's not what he should be. He's not what he one day will be, but this is true. He's not what he once was. Because the Spirit of God has come into his heart and changes things. You ever renovate a house? You throw out that old moldy carpet into the front yard. You throw out that old octopus furnace into the front yard. You throw out those terrible shingles into the front yard. And that's what the life of the Christian is like, renovation. You're throwing out sins. And when you see sins being thrown out, and you see a holy reconstruction going on, there's the fruit. There's the evidence that you're the real deal. You're not just fake. Because it says in 1 John 2, the one who says, I have come to know him, but doesn't obey his commandments, truth is not in him. But Jesus says in Matthew 7, by their fruits you will know them. Beloved, if we're the real deal, there'll be the work of the Holy Spirit as evidence and fruits in our lives. So that's the gospel, beloved. God, man, Jesus Christ, and response. And listen now, you've heard this one before, but that's okay. Peter says, I stir you up by way of reminder. Peter tells us that, so I'm reminding you. You know the story that Joel Beakey tells about Checkmate. The painting, Checkmate. It's a, it's a painting that was in the Louvre in France, in Paris. And the painting is a painting of the picture of a young man sitting on one side of a chessboard and the devil sitting on the other side of the chessboard and the devil has this predatory look that he has defeated the young man because the young man in sinning against God has sold his soul to Satan, all the temptations. And Satan knows it and so the chessboard shows by the picture that's checkmate. You may have come here today and sins you've committed and you came in thinking I'm checkmated by the devil, and I'm doomed to go to hell forever because of my sins. Well, the story goes on that there were two men who were looking at that painting in the Louvre, and, and one man looked at it for about 10 minutes, another looked at it for 10 minutes, and one of the men left, but the one who stayed was a chess master. And so he kept staring at that painting. He looked at the configuration of the pieces in the board, and about 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 50 minutes, he shouted out, Wait! Looked at the chessboard. There is a move! There is a move! It's not! Checkmate! All I'm telling you is, you came here today, and you thought your sin meant that the devil has you checkmated? Your sin is so heavy, you're so in despair, you're so hopeless. But Pastor Mark, you don't know what I've done. You don't know the things I've done in past months and past years, even in this past week. You don't know what I've done. All I'm coming to you is saying to you this morning in these burgundy chairs, it's not checkmate for you. I've given you the gospel. 
There is a move right now. There is a move. But it's the first time or the 10,000th and first time. The move is for you. Go to Christ. Believe in him. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have everlasting life. Believe, dear sinner, fellow sinner. Like I said, if it's the first time you do this and believe in him, or you have a false sense of assurance or wonder about your assurance, if it's the last, if it's the 10,000th and first time you believe in Jesus, believe in him again this morning, and your sins will be forgiven, and it will be well with your souls. Let's pray together.